Today's episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling is brought to you by our new sponsor, Eat Your Coffee. Energize the moment with Eat Your Coffee, a coffee company that was founded by coffee-deprived college students at Boston's Northeastern University. Today, the company is on a mission to get people energized with tasty caffeinated snacks. Every Eat Your Coffee bar is caffeinated with fair trade coffee, comparable to one cup, and is made with real ingredients so you can feel good with every energizing bite. And as always, energize the moment with Eat Your Coffee. The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the Boogie Woogie Man. Tell my people my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. See, you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hear me me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now, they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Unconscious. 
He's being held up literally by Patera. And Stud continues to rape. Stud and Patera rape the dignity of Andre the Giant, who has been recognized as one of the greatest athletes of all time. And Heaton keep keeping SD away. And Stud and Ken Patera continue to rape Andre the Giant's dignity. Look what they're doing to this man. I can't believe it that nothing's happened to stop this. This is ridiculous. They won't stop. Look at this, both of oh them. Oh, my. No. Oh, my. A nightmare. A complete nightmare. My goodness. This is one of the most despicable displays of conduct in the history of the World Wrestling Federation. In the history. Andre, unconscious. All right, let's get it going right here. Now, this is the two-man power trip of wrestling, brought to you today and powered by our good friends over at Eat Your Coffee. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined on the two-man power trip by my tag team partner, JP John Paz, who will be joining us for the interview tonight. But I want to welcome you in here for another great episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling, featuring wrestling legend and all-time great intercontinental champion, the one and only Olympian Ken Patera joining today's episode. And before we get into the discussion here about Ken Patera, I want to take a second. I want to thank the fine folks over at Feedspot for including us in the top 60 wrestling podcasts that you must subscribe to and listen to in 2018. It's always nice to be recognized, especially when you can be recognized as part of a list that has so many great shows and so many great names on it. And John and I always feeling very, very uh, good about the fact that there are people out there listening to this show that appreciate that what we try to do is add something a little different to the podcasting world, whether it's just these interviews, whether it's the Triple Threat podcast, or whether it's starting to kind of include some of these feature guests that we're adding into the fray. It's always nice to have somebody tell you that you're doing a great job and that there are people that appreciates the hard work that goes into these shows because folks... It is a hell of a task to get all these things out in a timely manner and bring you just the absolute best product that we can. And if you've been following us for three and a half years, then you know that we go above and beyond to make sure that we're putting out top quality interviews as well as guests that you might not find anywhere else in the podcast world. So with all that being said, let's talk a little bit about the Olympic strongman, Ken Patera, an all-time great heel in professional wrestling. And you think about those blonde locks and you think about the body slamming of Andre the Giant, you think about the hair cutting of Andre the Giant, and you think of some of the greatest heel work of the early 1980s when you think about Ken Patera. Because Patera is a guy who was all over the map, whether he was down in Mid-South or whether he was in Georgia or whether he was up in the AWA up in Minneapolis, or of course, I think where most people do remember a lot of his time was with the WWF and the WWF in the early 1980s with so many of those great feuds that he had back in those early days of the WWF where when he came into the fray and he was battling guys like Bob Backlund and Bruno San Martino, he always made you hate him so much that you had to see your heroes prevail. And Patera is going to give us some insight into those feuds in this interview that John conducted with him. And of course, 
as a heel, you got to get heat. And in New York City and Madison Square Garden, that is the perfect place to do so. And a guy like Ken Patera who could come in and he could spout off all his Olympic achievements and accomplishments, that is instant credibility. And those New York fans took to hating Ken Patera in such a big way. And there's just so many amazing moments from those early 1980s days in the New York Territory, the WWF, where he just got insane, insane heat from the crowds in and around the New York tri-state area. But I think what people will remember most about him is the feud with Andre the Giant, where Big John Studd and Ken Patera cut those just iconic long locks of Andre the Giant in 1984. And you think about just how that really changed the way Andre looked. I mean, it was such a vital part to that entire encompassing uh, appearance of Andre the Giant was that long hair and that big body. And when that was taken away from him, it was shocking, to say the least. And if you've ever watched the match where Kepatera and Big John Studd cut the hair of Andre the Giant, it almost feels as if you're watching something you shouldn't be because it's so intense. And the added commentary just it makes it such a shocking incident that in those early WWF days, that's something that you can go to as a real defining moment. And I think a lot of fans from that era really remember that as something that stands out to them because we think of Andre with that long hair. Even if you go and look at his LJN figure, you think about that long hair that he had that was so identifiable with his appearance that Kepatera was the one that cut the hair and uh, really set it off to change how Andre appeared to the crowd. And obviously he would come back in 1987 as a babyface, and he had a very tumultuous story that led to his days as a babyface. And that's kind of where I picked up Kempatera for the first time and seen him as a babyface battling the Heenan family and his former manager, Bobby the Brain Heenan. And it was kind of cool to see how he got worked into the mix. And he was there for 1987 and almost all of 1988 before departing, really at the end of summer. I think actually almost right after SummerSlam 88, that is when he was gone from the WWF, and he would go on to be in other promotions. He'd be in the UWF for a little bit, and then he'd ultimately retire from the wrestling business. But his position as an Olympian is something that very few people in the wrestling industry can take and run with it. Obviously, what comes to mind right off the bat, you think of Kurt Angle and how he's the Olympic hero, and he almost can put... Ken Patera and Kurt Angle in the same breath as they really may be the most successful Olympians. Maybe also I'll throw Mark Henry into that mix as well as being the most successful transitioned athletes from the Olympic world where obviously dedication and hard work are the personification of what an Olympian is and obviously very proud to have Ken Patera represent the United States in the Olympics and do what he did and bring it over into professional wrestling where all the fans can remember what he did and we will always have those memories and I really want you to enjoy this interview that John had here with Ken Patera. It's a lot of fun so please enjoy that and look we've got a lot going on as always in the two-man power trip of wrestling. We are planning two huge conventions in 2019. First the weekend of Wrestlemania actually on Wrestlemania day in New Jersey called Mark Out at the Meadowlands at the Meadowlands Hotel, where this coming week we are announcing the headlining guests on our Facebook page for the event, which if you go to Facebook, you can type in Mark Out at the Meadowlands, and you'll find all the information out about what's going on so far with this show and who's going to be added 
in the coming week. So if you're coming to New Jersey for WrestleMania, just about 20 minutes away from the venue, we are going to have Mark Out at the Meadowlands, where it's going to be a very cool theme for the super ticket guests of football players and wrestling and how those guys transition from the world of the gridiron to the professional wrestling ring. And so far, I mean, think about some of these names we've got. We've got Stan Hansen. We've got Tully Blanchard. We've got Tito Santana, all members of the infamous West Texas State University football team. And we've also got some really cool names that we have not yet announced for this show that will be added in the coming weeks. But we've got an amazing super ticket package plan. So go on over to our Facebook page to get that information. And also go over to a website for Mark Out at the Meadowlands. It's M-A-T-M-Con. Again, matmcon.com, and there you can get the rest of the vendor guest information, who's been added so far, and of course, more things to come. And then if you know the two-man power trip, you know we love Richmond, Virginia, and Richmond on May 18th, 2019, we are bringing Jim Cornette for TMPT Con 3 with the whole entire theme to be revealed in the weeks and months to come. But you got to stay tuned to the two-man power trip because there's always something going on. So we want to thank Ken Patera for joining us on today's show. We want to thank Eat Your Coffee for being the sponsor behind today's show. And with all this being said, let's do this. Let's wrap it up. Let's get it on over to the interview with Ken Patera. And let's dig in for some Olympic gold goodness as we are joined by the one and only Ken Patera. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno Sammartino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, TMPTOfWrestling.com. And for all you Android users, please hit us up on Google Play or Player FM. And all you iOS users, please check us out on TuneIn Radio, Automatic, Spotify, and now iHeartRadio. And now, without any further ado, a two-time AWA World Tag Team Champion, a former WWF Intercontinental Champion, and of course, famous for being the man that cut the locks of Andre the Giant. He is the world's strongest man. He is the Olympian, Ken Patera. Please enjoy.
All right. Joining us on the line is the world's strongest man, or excuse me, was the world's strongest man. He's a former WWF Intercontinental Champion and a former two-time AWA World Tag Team Champion. He is the legendary Ken Patera. Ken, welcome to the two-man power trip. Two-man power trip. Now, what are you guys based out of? New Jersey. New Jersey. Jesus. That was one of my least favorite places to ever go. Oh, why? Have you ever been to Newark, New Jersey? Oh, yeah. Yep. The shithole. Oh, I know it. (laughs) (laughs) It's a dump. We lived in a a neighboring town when I was younger, and uh, my my dad wanted to move a little little bit further away um, to get, get out of that place. Yeah, where you were you living in Orange or something? We were living in Harrison, which is um, basically a town or two over. Yeah, 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 yeah. All those little towns, they all run together. Yeah, that's all right. I like the people, but God, the governments that run those places are all screaming liberals, communists, socialists. Yeah. Have they ever had a Republican run that place? Not in a long time. I can't even think of the last time um, it wasn't a Democrat in charge. I bet it's been 30, 40 years, maybe 50 years. Who knows? And and I feel like a lot of the guys, a lot of the wrestlers from the the WWF era in the 70s and 80s lived in New Jersey, parts of New Jersey. Yeah. I I guess you were in that group or you just had spent a lot of time there just from working in WWF. Well, I lived over in Parsippany. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't live there very long, you know, maybe six months. You remember Rene Goulet? Oh, yes. Yep. Yeah. Rene Goulet and I rented a house together over there in Parsippany. And, uh, what was that? Yeah, it was a, yeah, it was a two-bedroom place. It was nice. A uh, little house, you know. Of course, uh, all we did was just sleep there. We never cooked or anything. You know, we always took our girlfriends home. The girls liked it because it was nice and cozy. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. Hey. More uh, yeah. praise to you and Renee. Wasn't Renee yeah. your first ever match as well? Uh, you know, well, he, uh, my first match was uh, Scrap Iron George Gadaski. And uh, that was on a Saturday night out in Wilmer, Minnesota. Uh, and then the next night, Sunday night, uh, downtown Minneapolis at the Civic Center was uh, Rene Goulet. Yeah. And those were the good old days, obviously, of the AWA. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was uh, in December. I don't know. We had three feet of snow and 20 below zero. Place was sold out. Yeah, people don't give a shit what the weather's like. You know, if they want to mm-hmm. see something, they come. Yeah. And since I was my rookie inauguration uh, bout, everybody showed up. Yeah, I mean, you had a pretty good name 
from your Olympic days and your weightlifting right. career and a straw man that people were very interested in, in you, especially going over to the wrestling world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, we had a hell of a crew, uh, at that time, Vern Gagne was the promoter, and he was a, a heavyweight champ at that time, too. I, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But, yeah, we had the Vachon brothers, uh, Butcher and Mad Dog and uh, Larry the Axe Henning and Nick Bockwinkel. Uh, yeah, we, we had a lot of, lot, lot of talent there. Yeah, Garden had the best talent in the country at the time. So many yeah. legendary guys. I mean, like you mentioned, all those guys, but then you, you you throw in guys that you came up with, like an Iron Sheik and a Flair and a Brunzel. I mean, there's so yeah. many great wrestlers came out of the AWA. Yeah, well, the wrestling camp uh, that Ganya had uh, when I went, uh, it was myself, uh, Ric Flair, uh, the Iron Sheik, a kid by the name of Bob Bruggers, who was a football player from uh, Minnesota. He uh, he had played uh, pro ball down uh, at Miami Dolphins and over in uh, Denver Broncos. And he got, I think it was his seventh or eighth season, he got injured. He hurt his knee and uh, couldn't play football anymore, but he could wrestle. And then uh, rounding out uh, the six-pack, jumping Jimmy Brunzel and Greg Gagne, Vern's kid. Yeah, so uh, we had a hell of a camp. And uh, uh, Don Morocco would come out and uh, uh, train us some days. And, uh, the, the, the main person that trained us was Billy Robinson. He was from Manchester, England. He was a, what we call in the business a shooter. So he taught us all the moves that would cripple somebody. And uh, so we did, uh, we all learned everything. It is the amazing, you know, when you think about it, it's just an amazing camp, an amazing roster of guys, guys that all ended up basically for the most part, making it and being huge names in the wrestling business. Was it as hard as it's, as, you know, built to be like the toughest camp and he almost killed you guys and the millions of squats and things of that nature? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was the toughest uh, wrestling camp in the country. You know, he didn't want any uh, uh, pansies or daisies in there, you know. And... uh, uh, everybody that was there was a legitimate athlete from outside of pro wrestling. And, uh, and the reason he kept it that way, uh, everybody that worked for him, uh, you know, uh, you, you can go all the way back to the crusher and Dick the Bruiser. Dick the Bruiser played uh, for the Green Bay Packers back in the early 50s before he started wrestling, Wilbur Snyder. Uh, I'm really going way back. (laughs) Hmm. But anyway, uh, Lou Thez and all those guys, they all came through Minneapolis. 
but they were all legitimate uh, athletes and legitimate wrestlers. And Vern uh, wanted to keep it that way, and uh, which he did. You know, I'm glad he did. I didn't want to be in there training with somebody that was a piece of shit. You know, I wanted mm-hmm. somebody, somebody in there I could fight. And uh, so that's what we did. We fought. Yeah. We beat each other up. Yeah, and the coach liked it. <laughs> that is great though I mean you get Billy Robinson there legendary like you said legendary shooter um, mm-hmm. then you got Morocco I mean these are the, the cream of the crop as far as guys that yeah. are able to come in and train you guys too which is amazing yeah yeah it was great uh, yeah there was four or five other wrestlers that uh, liked the workout you know they'd, they'd come out to the training camp there wasn't much of a camp it's an old dilapidated horse barn uh, about 20 miles west of Minneapolis. And when I say dilapidated, I mean fucking falling down, brother. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, Vern had a ring set up. It was just dirty, nasty. And I couldn't believe it. I says, uh I talked to him. I said, uh, Mr. I used to call him Mr. Ganya. I said, uh, are you ever going to get a new ring in here? Well, what the hell's wrong with the one that's in there? I said, it's a shit. The plywood <laughs> boards are popping up and the canvas is all uh, loose. The ropes are uh, uh, all stretched out, and uh, I said it was just terrible. Well, that's what you have to uh, learn wrestling in. Do the best you can. (laughs) Yeah. I guess they they want to see if you're going to make it or if you want to stick with it, and then those that do obviously reap the benefits and can become a pretty big star like you did, especially within the AWA. Yep, yep. Yeah, it would have been nicer to have a decent ring to train in, though. I mean, that thing was dangerous. And, uh, you know, we'd get there about 10 in the morning, and uh, it's just colder now. I I don't think it was ever above – it was always below freezing, let's put it that way. It was always below 30 degrees. So a couple days, it was like 10 below. And uh, so uh, those were the days that nobody ever sat down to take a break. You always, you're always on your feet moving. And uh, because uh, the barn, uh, uh, you know, the, well, people know what old barns look like. Mm-hmm. Well, the wind just blew right through them. You know, and that shit, you would get there on snowy mornings. Sometimes uh, there's a couple big gaps in the uh, side of the barn, but the snow would blow in there, and uh, we'd have three, four-foot drifts inside the uh, barn, right up to uh, uh, within 10 feet of the ring. And uh, it was like a refrigerator in there, uh, or a deep freeze, I should say deep freeze. Yeah, crazy conditions. Uh, my God. Yeah, really. Yeah, 
and then we'd start off uh, warm up with a couple hundred squats and uh, uh, push-ups, jumping jacks, uh, running in place, all that stuff, you know, calisthenics. Mm-hmm. And then we'd go through all the different uh, wrestling maneuvers, uh, you know, throw each other into the rope. You know, take a clothesline or a tackle and then uh, body slam each other a hundred times. You know, it was ridiculous. So the amount of bumps we took a day, we we took at least a hundred bumps a day, every day for three months. And there's uh, a little guy from uh, uh, Omaha, Nebraska. He was in the 48 Olympic Games. He was an amateur wrestler. He won a gold medal. And he came up and looked at the situation. He came up up about uh, a week after we started. Uh, Vern hired him to come up. He had already retired from pro wrestling. Uh, what the hell is uh, Scarpelli, I think. A little Italian guy. Really a nice guy. And uh, he says, okay, what are you guys been doing? We told him. He said, what? He couldn't believe it. <laughs> he said, after the first, our first workout was, uh, yeah, Joe, Joe, Joe Scarpelli. He said, he said, well, Vern just managed to take about 10 years off of every one of your careers. <laughs> he said, he, at this rate, you guys will be bumped up before your career even starts. And uh, I told him, I said, that's what I was thinking, Joe. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, was, uh, it wasn't easy, I'll tell you that. It is great, though, that if you could stick with it, which most of you obviously did, and you yourself, to give you a nice little push in, in the AWA. But I feel like when they brought you into the camp, they had some high hopes that you were going to be featured as far as your Olympic career, then they figured they would feed you as, as a main event player within the AWA. Oh, yeah. I started off um, uh, uh, my first match uh, being featured. Yeah. Yeah, Rene Goulet, he was uh, like a semifinal. You know, he was a main eventer. And then uh, uh, a couple of weeks later, I was... Uh, tag team uh, with the Crusher. I mean, he was the biggest name in the AWA in the history of the AWA at that time. And uh, so, yeah. Yeah, we were... I was definitely uh, brought in to uh, be one of the men. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, no girls allowed <laughs> until until after the show. Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> What do you think at this point about Bobby Heenan and the Heaney family? Because you would, you know, basically you, know, you turn heel, you join them, and this is kind of Bobby before everyone knew him from his WWF days, but really gaining a lot of traction with the Heenan family and the AWA, and that's really kind of where he made a name for himself. Yeah, well, Heenan started off uh, in Indianapolis with Wilbur Snyder and Dick the Bruiser. He was the ring boy. And uh, Bobby told me the story. He was 15 years old. 
and he had uh, dropped out of school. He quit school when he was 15. And uh, his mother tried to send him to Chicago to a military academy in Chicago. That only lasted a couple months, so... Um, so he, yeah, he definitely didn't want to go to school. So uh, he bugged Wilbur Snyder and Dick the Bruiser so much that those guys finally hired him as a uh, ring boy. Yeah, he was only 15, weighed, you know, about 130 pounds. He was just a little guy. And so he'd uh, go out to the ring and bring the ring jackets back and, uh, you know, uh, give the guys uh, towels uh, for their shower after the matches, and you know, so and just you know, run little errands and stuff. He did that for two, three years, and then uh, uh, he was uh, working out with some of the wrestlers, and some of the guys said, "Hey, Dick, yeah, take a look at this kid. He's got some uh, pretty good moves. He's pretty athletic." And Dick said, well, what are you talking about? So next thing, <laughs> yeah, they beat him up like a dummy, basically, until he was in his early 20s. But Bobby loved it, you know. Of course, he didn't get paid. And, uh, uh, well, he was living with mother is what it was. He, he, I think he lived with his mother until she, until he was about 20 or 21. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, he was, uh, and so he got a lot, he had a lot of experience before he came to, to Minneapolis and, uh, AWA and he knew Bachwinkle and Ray Stevenson and all those guys from, uh, Chicago and Indianapolis. So, and, uh, Vern Gagne had known, he saw him around, so. Vern says, yeah, come on in, you know, we'll, you'll be a manager for uh, Ray Stevens and Nick Bockwinkle. And, of course, they had the tag team uh, world championship belts at that time. And so Bobby fit right in. And uh, after that, he uh, he did real well for himself. Yeah, definitely. I feel like AWA was definitely a place where a lot of guys made it big, and then went on to WWF and made it even bigger. Another one of those guys, for sure, got that you feuded with in both, was a guy like Hulk Hogan, made his name kind of big in the AWA, and yeah. really took off in the WWF. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, but, uh, you know, Sergeant Slaughter started here. Uh, uh, Sergeant Slaughter grew up here, in, mm-hmm. uh, just outside of Minneapolis. And so he, he started... Uh, wrestling for Vern the year after our wrestling camp ended. He was in the next one with Ricky Steamboat. And uh, uh, I was two brothers from Duluth, Minnesota. And, uh, what the hell is it? I can't think of their names now. Ah, I'm having a brain fart. But uh, what the hell is their name? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Well, it does matter, but I can't think of their names right now. Uh, uh, 
Anyway, screw it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there was a lot of wrestlers that came out of Minnesota. Oh, it's, it's and then, crazy. Uh, yeah, later on, uh, the Road Warriors and uh, their manager, Paul Ellering, and uh, like you said, Ricky Steamboat, mm-hmm. Sergeant yep. Slaughter. And, uh, oh, there were so many. I can't even think of all the younger ones, but Wayne Bloom and uh, so many people, you know, and uh, uh, Barry Darso. Mike Enos, yeah. Yeah, yeah, my, yeah, Mike Enos. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of good talent. Now, when you left AWA and went to WWF, was that a, a recruitment by Vince, or how did you actually kind of leave? I mean, I know obviously you, you end up um, in Mid Atlantic at JP for a little bit, and obviously you know you spent some time at Mid South and Japan. But how did you end up in the WWF when you did? Well, when I left here, when I left AWA, I went to the NWA down in Dallas, Texas, and uh, worked for Fritz von Erich and uh, Paul Bosch down in Houston. And then I uh, I went to uh, Georgia, uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling, and that's when Ted Turner just put the satellite up, so everybody in the country was watching Georgia championship wrestling. Mm-hmm. And I, I wasn't there very long. I don't think I was there more than four months. And then, uh, uh, Georgia championship wrestling, uh, they weren't doing any business down there. It was starving. I, I was averaging three fifty a week. Uh, then, uh, I called Bruno, um, up in the WWF mm-hmm. and Bruno was a big fan of mine. You know, he's a big weightlifter and everything. And so he said, well, let me talk to Vince. Uh, not the kid, you know, the old man. Mm-hmm. Vince senior. Yep. Yeah. Vince senior. And, uh, so Bruno called me back about a week later and says, yeah, I just talked to Vince. He'd love to have you up here. Uh, when could you come? I says, well, anytime you need me. <laughs> hmm. He said, well, we're doing TV. He said, I'm going to give you Vince's phone number. You call Vince and arrange it with Vince. So I called Vince, and uh, he sent me a, a plane ticket, and he said he'd come up for TV for a couple days. Actually, it'd be three days, and we'll do do that for uh, two or three TVs, see how it goes. And then, uh, that's all I did was TV. I didn't do any house shows or anything. So, uh, cause they, you know, they didn't know how, you know, back in those days, you know, you're, you're wrestling different territories, but not, nobody knows how, how good you are until they see you. And, right. uh, yeah, so they, I, I, I was going up there for, uh, an audition really, you know, for wrestling and talking on the mic in front of the TV camera and everything. And so they put, uh, Lou Albano as my manager and that worked out great. You know, I, I love Lou. He's, you know, half crazy <laughs> and, uh, I mean, really crazy. <laughs> 
but uh, yeah, so uh, we hit off the first when they started getting the feedback back uh, within three or four days after uh, the first TV uh, showing of when I started, the uh, fans were going wild, you know, uh, as only New York fans can be. And uh, so it went, uh, it went real good. And uh, so I started, that was in October. And I started in, uh, I was actually wrestling for Bill Watts out in Oklahoma Territory at the time. And I had a falling out with Bill, and I, but I was living in North Carolina. So I left Oklahoma. I went back to North Carolina, and that's when I called Bruno. And uh, so anyway, we got it all set up, and uh, one thing led to another, and uh, that, that was it. And then uh, after I did a couple TV uh, shoots, uh, Vince asked me to start in uh, January of uh, 67, or 70, no, 77. Is that 60? No, 77. Yeah, what's mm-hmm. that uh, 1970, but but I doing the TV dates in '76. That's what it was. Yeah, and so that, and you pretty much started feuding with Bruno, who helped you get in. But Bruno is like the king of New York. You know, the longtime yeah. WWF world champion. You feud with him over the title, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, we wrestled uh, each other three times in all the big venues, uh, Madison Square Garden. Boston Garden, Igloo over in Pittsburgh, uh, down in Philadelphia at the Spectrum. Shit, half those buildings don't even exist anymore. <laughs> Crazy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they've all been torn down. But, uh, yeah, uh, so I'm, I must have wrestled Bruno's shit, I don't know, 30, 40 times at least. And, uh, I think we had a sell-out percentage of probably about 95, 96%. You know, so uh, the promotion was real happy with me, and I was happy with the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, back in those days, uh, if you are the main event, Vince took good care of you. And uh, I was there for... Oh, gee whiz, I don't remember how long I was there. A year and a half, I guess. And uh, I'd bought a house down in Charlotte. And my family was down there. And so my wife kept bugging me. Oh, Kenny, come back and work for uh, Crockett Promotions down here, you know. And uh, he said, I've been talking to Jimmy Crockett's uh, uh, wife and George Scott's wife, George Scott was the booker at the time. They said they can make you as much money as Vince is paying you up there. And I said, well, shit, the territory must be doing pretty, pretty good. <laughs> hmm. and, and that, that, they had a hell of a crew down there too. So I went down there and, uh, fit right in and, uh, I wasn't making as much money as I was in the WWF, but it wasn't that far off. And uh, it was a lot less hectic. Yeah. The, the only difference in the WWF, I wrestled about 17 times a month, I remember. 
down in uh, Charlotte and the Crocker Promotions, NWA, we wrestled uh, 28, 29 days a month. Oh, we wow. didn't have, yeah, we didn't get any time off. As a matter of fact, in 19, uh, 1979, I had 10 days off that year. 10 days off. Crazy. Yeah. That's it. Wow. 10 days off. You know, it's ridiculous. I said, fuck this. <laughs> yeah, but in other words, the grass isn't always greener on the other side of the fence. Yep, that's true. And then you end up basically going back to the WWF in, in 1980, yep. and then you're feuding with yep. Bob Backlund, who was then the WWF world champion yep. on that side. So you're feuding again with the world champion. Yeah, yeah Backlund, he's another one. He's from Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The thing is, I'm not from Minnesota. I'm from Portland, Oregon. (laughs) But I've lived here. I moved back here uh, in 1970 to train for the Olympic Games. And that's when I met Ric Flair. Ric Flair was bouncing at a bar over on the west side of Minneapolis name of the bar was George's in the Park. The guy that owned it was George Schomburg. And uh, uh, so I I, uh, I bounced uh, uh, on the back door, which was the Blue Dog Saloon, and uh, Rick worked the front door, which was the dinner theater. That place was just... Uh, Unbelievable. Uh, I don't know if there's ever, well, I shouldn't say that, but there couldn't be a better nightclub whiskey bar in the country uh, at any, uh, in any decade. That place was just crazy. And uh, the business they did, oh my God. Um, and uh, so we had fun. Yeah, but, and then Rick and I rented a house together uh, in South Minneapolis. <laughs> that was the original Animal House. Hmm. I yeah. believe it. Yeah, that was the original Animal House. Well, even to this day, Rick has to be, uh, you know, the uh, life of the party. There's got to be a party going on wherever he's at. You know, Rick's almost 70 years old now. and uh, But he, he hasn't slowed down at all. Yeah, we uh, we had some parties. Uh, unbelievable. Yeah, but after the bar closed, the bars only stayed open until 1 o'clock here in Minnesota uh, back in those days. And... Uh, Still might be that way. I don't know. I, I don't go out to bars anymore. But anyway, um, he'd invite everybody that was at the bar. Shit, we'd get 30, 40 people sometimes at uh, 2, 3 in the morning. And I said, Rick, you fucking asshole. I have to get up and train at 6 o'clock. 
I said, I don't want all these dirt bags stopping through the house. Oh, God, I'm sorry, Ken. I didn't, I forgot, I forgot. I said, no, you didn't forget. Yeah, but he always had to be the center of attention. And uh, that is what it is, you know. But, yeah, we had some, some times, you know, Life was never dull with uh, Ric Flair around. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Hey, let's pause for one second to remind you that today's episode is brought to you by our brand new sponsor, Eat Your Coffee. Eat Your Coffee is a coffee company that was founded by coffee-deprived college students that pioneered a new category in caffeinated natural snacks. The company's first product line, Eat Your Coffee Bars, are a date-based snack bar caffeinated with fair trade coffee, which would be comparable to one cup, and made with real ingredients so you can feel good with every energizing bite. Eat Your Coffee snack bars are non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, kosher, 70% organic, and available in three delicious flavors, including fudgy mocha latte, salted caramel macchiato, and peanut butter mocha, my personal favorite. Now that is an energizing combination, because they are on a mission to help get people energized with naturally caffeinated snacks made with real, ethically sourced ingredients. So if you want more information, head on over to www.eatyour.coffee, as well as follow them on Instagram, follow them on Facebook, follow them on Pinterest, and follow them on Twitter, and get all the information on how you can energize the moment with Eat Your Coffee Bars. I definitely, uh, I believe that 100%. Now, if I could just go back to the WWF for a second, because you do end up winning, you beat Pat Patterson, you win the Intercontinental title, which obviously was the number two title then, but you yeah. also start feuding not too long after that, a couple years after that, with Hulk Hogan, who was the WWF champion at that point. So not only, you know, do you guys kind of, you know, mirror each other a little bit from the AWA, both in WWF, but again, you're put in the limelight, you're put in the main event, and you're feuding with Hogan, who's the champion. Do you like that kind of recurring theme for you in the WWF? You're always in, or, you know, for the most part, in the main event and feuding with the world champion. Yeah, well, I I was always a a main event uh, talent, you know. You know, I was in uh, great demand. When I was uh, wrestling for Ganya, uh, and even Vince, uh, Vince always had uh, friends. He had his buddy Sam Mushnick in St. Louis and Frank up there in uh, Canada. Uh, uh, what what the hell's the town above uh, Detroit there? Toronto? Yeah, Toronto. And uh, then like, he'd send me down to... Uh, 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 New Orleans for Watts and over to Houston for uh, uh, Paul Bosch. And, you know, he had me going all over the place. I was still wrestling in the WWF. That was my main base, New York City. But, shit, he had me flying all over the goddamn country. And uh, because, you know, the, you know, he knew I wanted to make more money. And he couldn't afford to pay me what I wanted. So he sat me down one day. He says, Ken, you wrestled in Texas. You wrestled a little bit in Canada. You wrestled in St. Louis. What if uh, 
and you get along good with all those promoters, and they're all friends of mine. Do you want to, uh, you know, once in a while, if I arrange it, uh, you want to go uh, wrestle for those guys when you have days off here? Because I was only wrestling 17 days a month for Vince. And I said, yeah. I said, as long as I can be home at least seven, eight days a month. And uh, so it worked out fine. And after two or three months, fuck, I was only home about four days a month. You know, I told Vince, I said, no, stop booking me. I don't want to be booked this much. You know, I have a family to take care of, and I want some semblance of a a life. You know, I don't want to be on the road every goddamn day. Right. And uh, But that's what wrestling is, you know. Or do you know? I don't know if you know or not. Oh, yeah, the travel and the, the grind. Oh, brutal. Yeah. It's a brutal existence. When you're wrestling that much, it's an existence. It's not a fucking life. It's like uh, these country western singers. They all have those big tour buses, and they go out on tour. They're out on tour for six, seven months a year. Well, wrestlers were on tour basically 12 months a year. Now, a lot of people aren't aware of that. And uh, people, uh, every time somebody asks, what was your toughest match, Ken? Uh, Andre the Giant, uh, uh, Bruno Sarmartino, uh, they mentioned somebody, uh, Hulk Hogan. I said, you really want to know my toughest match? Yeah. The fucking highway. (laughs) Goddamn highway. (laughs) You know, we started off, I was traveling 130, 140,000 miles a a year by car. And uh, like here in Minnesota, uh, we wrestle about 22 days a a month, but the average trip was uh, 340 miles each way. You know, the Midwest is a big place. Mm, yep. 340 miles to the arena, 340 miles back. That's 280, or what is that? The 680 miles. And you do that four or five times, six times. Uh, a month adds up. I'll tell you a trick. Yeah, Don Morocco calls me one morning and uh, says, Kenny, I was going to fly up to Winnipeg today, but uh, I called out there and uh, they said there's something wrong with the plane or that it's oversold. I can't get, and my, uh, my pickup isn't running. Can I ride up to Winnipeg with you? I says, yeah, but I'm leaving in about five minutes. It's like 10 in the morning. Well, it's 530 miles each way. And he says, holy shit. He says, uh, can you pick me up downtown? I said, well, yeah, I, I can get off the freeway down there. And I told him to meet me somewhere. I can't remember. But uh, uh, him and Jimmy uh, Snooker were tag team partners at the time. 
Yeah, but Tim, uh, Jimmy was off for some reason, and uh, uh, Dust, Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch were going too. But uh, they had a, a, a Camaro, a Chevy Camaro, and uh, they didn't have any uh, room for Mur- for. Uh, uh, for Morocco, so I picked Don up. We take off. I don't think we averaged less than eighty-five, maybe ninety, and that was even on the fucking uh, uh, side roads. Because <laughs> the hmm. freeway, the freeway from Minneapolis to Winnipeg wasn't complete yet. This 1993. I don't think they finished that freeway until, oh God, 75, maybe 76 even. And uh, so we're on our way up to Winnipeg, snowing like a bastard. And we pull into the arena, uh, took us eight, uh, no, not eight hours. Uh, it took us about seven hours to get up there, but we went to the hotel first. We stay at this hotel, a Marlboro Hotel, downtown Winnipeg. Then, then we went out to the arena, which is on the outskirts of uh, town, a big hockey arena. That's where the Winnipeg hockey team played. And uh, I can't even remember the name of them. What they called the Blues or? Something like that. The Winnipeg Jets. Was it the Jets? Mm-hmm. I believe yeah. so. I think it was the Winnipeg Jets. Okay. So anyway, we get to the arena. Place is sold out. Fucking people outside. Probably two, 3,000 people out in the parking lot milling around. Just, you know, looking for shit to do. You know, just... Trying to find trouble. Finally got into the arena. We had our uh, matches. I don't remember what I wrestled. But uh, we had our matches, and we we get out. Uh, I said, where are we going to stay tonight? Well, we're going to drive back. And I said, really? I said, 530 miles. So that's all right. But, well, well, already like 11.30. He said, we'll go down here at the KFC, get a couple buckets of chicken, and we'll uh, swing by the liquor store and get a couple cases of beer, and we'll be on our way. Hmm. <laughs> and by this time, there's like six, eight inches of snow on the ground, on the freeway. There's that real fluffy type snow. And uh, we're going down the freeway 80 miles an hour. And uh, we came across uh, Larry Henning and some other guys were, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, Red Bass Steams. And some other guys, I think there's four in their car. There's only two in mine. I had a big 98 uh, Regency Oldsmobile at the time. That son of a bitch. That's one of the best cars I ever had. Yeah, it was like a big boat. And we, <laughs> we're going down there, and Don says, hey, you, 
going a little slow, aren't you, Ken? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, Henry and those guys, you can't even see their taillights anymore. I said, Don, I'm going 90. Oh, you are? I said, yeah. And there's eight inches of snow on the freeway. And uh, so anyway, uh, we finally caught up to them again. They were all drunk, throwing beer bottles out the windows and everything. <laughs> and I said, holy shit, what did I get myself into? I'd only been in the wrestling business like three weeks at the time. and uh, But it was fun. Yeah. Welcome to the wrestling business, huh? Wrestling yeah. one-on-one with the partying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That is great. And, you know, you're talking about before the kind of toughest matches, and obviously you said the highway, but you did mention Andre the Giant, and I do remember you slamming him, and I do remember you shaving or being a part of shaving his head. So you handled Andre pretty good. I guess he wasn't as tough uh, for old world's strongest man. I told Andre, I said, listen here, you big asshole. You fuck with me, I'm going to beat you like a redheaded stepchild. <laughs> and every time he got out of hand with me, that's what I would do. I'd slap him around like a redheaded stepchild. And then I'd pick him up and body slam his ass. And they did that big deal, I guess, at WrestleMania where Hulk Hogan was the first and only man to ever body slam Andre. Mm-hmm. I, yep. I I body slammed Andre seven, eight, nine times. I even slammed him in his uh, adopted hometown, Montreal, Canada, in front of 20,000 people. And uh, I said, are you sure? You know, he says, come here, body slam, boss. Always called, he called everybody boss. I said, okay, up he went. Body slammed him. 20,000 people, you could hear a pin drop in the place. I mean, as I said, holy shit, here comes a fucking riot. And uh, if he hadn't kicked out, there would have been a riot, and I would have been the center of it. And uh, I was probably in about a couple dozen riots in those wrestling arenas. You know, just let people get goofy. I mean, really go goofy. It's like, it's on, it, it, there's like soccer. <clears throat> soccer games down in South America. You know how nutty those fans are? Yeah, that, oh, yeah. That, that's exactly how the fans are, uh, you know, back in those days. That's how the wrestling fans were. They, they were like uh, uh, soccer fans uh, in South America. They were fucking nuts. And uh, they were dangerous. I mean, it was really dangerous. You know, I could tell you stories. I, I don't have time tonight, but maybe I'll talk to you some other time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But uh, how long have we been talking? I got to... Oh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll wind it down here and kind of go for the uh, go for the finish, if you will. Yeah. I was just curious, you know, just a few more questions. I was just curious, you know, obviously there was uh, an incident in the 80s. You, you left the business for a while. You, when you came back, they had the Kent Patera Coliseum on video, which I still have somewhere in storage, which was which is great. But was it way different for you because you were part of, of an era and then you come back and it's a lot of sports entertainment, um, you know, the WrestleMania era, if you will. Um, Vince yeah. Jr. is in charge. You know, there's a lot, a lot of changes within the business. Was that kind of um, 
you know, hard for you to kind of grasp because there was so many changes with the writing and the characters and the sports entertainment stuff. Yeah, well, I had had it with wrestling. And uh, I had about four or five major surgeries, you know, injuries and stuff from, you know, my amateur uh, uh, days, you know, lifted all those heavy weights. They busted all my joints up. And uh, then, you know, wrestling every night, you know, for several years. Uh, I said, well, I'll get I'll, one more go around. I, I said, I'll give it two years. But my heart wasn't really into it. And the business had kind of basically, you know, passed me by. And uh, Vince was going in a different direction. And I didn't want to go in that direction. And since he was about, his his dad had died. And so it it went from uh, basically a one-man operation, his dad, to a, a big corporate uh, structure. And uh, like I say, it just, you know, it, it passed me by and I wasn't uh, willing to, uh, you know, keep up with it. And then Vince Jr. started treating me like a fucking uh, liability instead of an asset, which I let him know. And uh, so I just... Uh, wrapped it up at uh, Survivor Series. And uh, that, that, that I had had enough. And uh, so uh, but, but when you see the handwriting on the wall, it's time to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I really didn't want to do it anymore. You know, so... And you even changed your look a little bit. You know, you had had new uh, new hair color, if, if you will. Well, my just my natural hair color. Yeah, I didn't want to bleach my hair anymore. And is that what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, I didn't want to bleach my hair anymore. I didn't want to. Well, there's a lot of stuff I didn't want to know. You know, people don't need to know. A lot of things I didn't want to do, and uh, so it was time to go. Yeah, I said I had my I had my sixteen years, and I I still worked independent shows for oh shit I don't know five years. Mm -hmm. So I wrestled, yeah, I wrestled when I wanted to wrestle, and I was still making decent money. But I, you know, I had a health club here in St. Paul. Yeah, I was doing well with that. I had a limo service. I was doing, yeah, I was kind of breaking even, really. And I have a sports nutrition company. I had a tanning salon. I had a lot of shit, a lot of uh, irons in the fire. And so I I really didn't need wrestling anymore. <laughs> and, That's good, know, though. Yeah. Well, I went from being an athlete, wrestler, to being a business guy. And uh, I enjoyed that. Time was my own. I was my own boss. And I didn't have to listen to a bunch of bullshit from McMahon or whoever was doing the booking. And uh, so, yeah, it was, it was time to go. Yeah. 
Now, looking back at your wrestling career and even your career in general, your strongman, Olympian, what would you say is kind of the lasting legacy of Ken Patera when, when somebody looks back? What, what would you say is the legacy? Well, God, I don't know. I got along with everybody. Uh, didn't give anybody any heartache. Uh, didn't give any promoters upset stomachs or headaches. You know, I was easy to get along with. And uh, I was a business guy. You know, I was a diplomat. And uh, if I was wrestling for somebody that was a dickhead, then uh, I'd... Uh, I just left, you know. I said, "Well, we'll see you later." I walked out a couple on uh, a couple uh, promoters, you know. So uh, let's say it. I wasn't shy or bashful. Let's <laughs> <laughs> put it that way. I, I didn't wait around for my last paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> Larry Francis, who set this up at a wrestling historian on Instagram, is how to find him. He's got a lot of great stuff on there as well. I want to mention that. Now, Mr. Patera, is there anything that uh, you want to leave, you know, a little message for the fans or if anybody wanted to book you or any sort of plug or promotion that you wanted to get out there? Yeah, well, I have a lot of time on my hands. Uh, if uh, anybody wants me to make a personal appearance or anything, uh, just call, uh, get a hold of Larry. Uh, you have his, uh, you'll put his website up, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, I love getting out of St. Paul, Minneapolis uh, once in a while. I still do personal appearances. I do four or five a year. As a matter of fact, I have one on the 10th of uh, November uh, back uh at a big hotel across from LaGuardia Airport there in New, New York. Oh, yes, that's yeah. right. You will be a part of the big event. I forgot to mention it to you, the big yeah. event. Yeah, in uh, Queens, New York, over by, uh, well, the LaGuardia Plaza Hotel, right across the street from the LaGuardia Airport. That's right. You will yeah. be there as well. Yeah. And uh, so I I still get out and around, and uh, I, I love going to those autograph sessions, you know, meet people, and... Uh, sign autographs for three, four hours and <laughs> make a few bucks. But but I do it for smaller venues, too. <clears throat> so if um, anybody has a few bucks rattling around in their bank account, uh, get a hold of me. Absolutely, Mr. Patera. Yeah. Thank you so much uh, for all your time tonight. And remember, folks, he's a former strongman, a former Olympian, former Intercontinental Champion, but he was also a man that could beat Andre Giant within an inch of his life. Let's remember that. That's right. Slap him up like a red-headed stepchild. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Mr. Patera, thank you so much. I appreciate all the time you gave me tonight. Thank you so much. You bet. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.